1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 9 says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And verses 12 through 21 say, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Take your Bible out, if you will, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That is what Patty just read from, as we saw on the screen. And as we begin this morning, I want to thank each of you for being here on this beautiful Easter morning that we have. I think there's rain coming later today, but we have a beautiful morning. Amen. I never get tired of reading or thinking about the narrative of that first Sunday morning when Jesus was resurrected. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and, were, and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Church, he is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I heard it. What's the tradition, the Christian tradition? He is risen. The response? 
Let's say it again. He is risen. He is risen. risen For Christians, Easter is the centerpiece of our faith. There is never a time when resurrection ever becomes an old story. And it should never be relegated to just one Sunday a week. We should think resurrection every day that we live, knowing what we have in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, we to live in God. What a precious thing that is for us to have. I want you to join me here in 1 Corinthians 15, the greatest chapter on the resurrection that's recorded in the New Testament. It is certainly the most comprehensive uh, teaching given on the subject. So let's pick up, if we can, at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is night, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The most important, essential treaty that the Apostle Paul shares on the resurrection is when he addresses the implications of the resurrection on us. And in this case, he's dealing with people who in that day that were in the church in Corinth, many of them, who didn't believe that Jesus was raised bodily. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection of the Lord. And so he fleshes that out for them. He lets them know if that's what you believe, then here's the reality. This is what it means. Here's the implication. And so you have to have a resurrected Christ to have a Christian faith. There is no Christian faith anywhere in the world without a resurrected Jesus. So let's begin by asking the question, just how real is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, I'll tell you this much. People don't die for any old cause. They die for a cause that's worth dying for. Tertullian said it this way, life is nothing worth living until you found something worth dying for. One of the great realities of the Christian faith is that millions of Christians, listen, hundreds of millions into the billion Christians have given their lives defending the truth that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because it was Jesus Christ himself who said, because, because I live, you also will live. And some of you here this morning, maybe you've always been connected to some degree with Christianity. Maybe you were raised in a church. Maybe your mother, your father, your grandmother, whoever it was, had such a great faith. And you have such reverence and offer them for their faith in God. And while you might not personally believe everything about the Christian faith, you at least will defer to them and you'll go along with and show respect and honor. Maybe you think that Jesus was a good man 
and the things that you read historically and that people have written about Jesus, for the most part, is really good. You might even think it's all good. What I've read about Jesus, I think he's an upstanding man. I think he's a great guy. Is he God? Mm, I don't think so, but he, he is outstanding. Uh, the reality is you have to come to grips with what Jesus himself said. What did he say? Because I live, you also shall live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's not something said about him. That's what came out of his own mouth. Now you've got a quandary because you have to decide, is he who he says he is, the resurrection and the life, is he God, or uh, have people taken it beyond? And if he's not what he says, then he's a liar. Then he's not totally truthful. He's corrupt. He's not a man of integrity. That's what you're facing this morning as we begin this message. And so let's get into this teaching that Paul gives. I think it's going to speak to all of us in some way. That's the beauty of the Bible, church. The Bible is a living book. It's always alive, from front cover to back. And it works in every culture, in every generation. The Bible's not limited by culture. The Bible's not somehow picked off because of a woke culture today. The Bible stands forever, the Bible says. In fact, it says heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God will stand forever. So long after these cultures that we're in today are gone, this Bible will still be true. And so let's go ahead. It's estimated that up to 4 million Christians were buried in the 600 miles of catacombs hidden under the city of Rome during the persecution. During 300 years of suppression, believers were buried underground. And interestingly enough, etched on many of those, uh, those tombs, it's interesting, in the ground alongside that, that body are the words, you live in God. They were saying, this body is gone. This body is dead. But they would write on the ground, you live in God. Why? They believed it. And not just a few, four million were persecuted to death, meaning they were unwilling to recant what they believed about Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life. It's estimated that during the Dark Ages, as many, listen to this, in the Dark Ages, as many as 50 million Christians gave their lives in the cause of Christ. They did so with the hope and the faith that there's, there would be a, it would not be a wasted martyrdom. That if I surrender my life, my physical life, for the cause of Christ, it's worth it. A hundred thousand have died in the revolutions in Africa. They say that a million Chinese Christians died when the communists seized China. Century after century, and individual after individual, people have lived and died in the confident hope that there is life after death based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, you can't deny it, it's in the history books. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. By the way, he didn't say that future tense. He didn't say one day, we hope that our citizenship will be in heaven. 
he speaks in the present while he was still alive. I already belong to Christ. My life is his life. He lives in me. No longer do I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And I've inherited all the wonderful blessings that are spoken of in Ephesians. I am seated in heavenly places with Christ right now. I have the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit in me right now. And I have a home in heaven right now. I'm a citizen of heaven right now. You go to the grocery store and somebody says, hey, where are you heading? Well, I'm heading uh, to heaven, but I think I'll go home and have some groceries first. That's the way we ought to be living our lives every day. He goes on, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is more than just a good man who said a lot of good things. He is God, and everything is subject to him. It was the truth of the resurrection that bolstered, if you remember the story in Acts of Stephen, when he was being pelted by the bloody rocks of martyrdom. Acts chapter 7, verse 55, it says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, while the rocks are coming, getting ready to be fired upon him, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. God pulled back the curtain and let him look. And as he looked in the sky, he didn't see clouds anymore. He saw heaven. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they barraged him with stones, Stephen cried out in hope, Lord, receive my spirit. He had a confident, quiet hope that he was going to be with the Lord as his body gave up the ghost. This was the same hope that allowed the Apostle Paul to give his life, to have his head severed from his body in the quiet confidence that he would be brought into the presence of Jesus Christ. At the very heart and soul of the Christian faith, we find millions upon millions into the billions of Christians who have suffered and died in this faith without recantation. Could there be a greater proof of the resurrection of Christ? This is why we should never limit the message of the resurrection of our Lord to one day a year. Every day you live, you ought to get up in the morning and thank God that Jesus died for you and that he rose again for you. That you are found alive in him. We live because he lives. We have hope because he arose from the dead. Amen? Now let's focus on 1 Corinthians 15. The goal being to help you understand the flow of this incredible presentation that Paul gives. In the first 11, let me just break it down for you. In the first 11 verses, Paul presents undeniable facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke actually calls these undeniable facts infallible proofs that Jesus rose from the, from the dead. And by the way, these men that would use words like infallible proof, undeniable facts, listen, these men ended up dying martyr deaths. That means they had the opportunity to stop saying it because they really in their heart of hearts didn't believe it. It was a front. That never happened. They went to their grave saying it. Here's, if you will, you can look at verse 1 in our text in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Listen as Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Again, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, and he's addressing a great concern, that there are some in the church, and many outside the church, who are trying to disqualify the bodily resurrection of the Lord, or that the, after the resurrection, that a body can be raised. They did not believe, they, or I'm sorry, after the death, that a body could be raised. So the first great evidence of the resurrection, here it is, I'll give, give you three right now. Number one, the first great evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is transformed lives. Look what Paul said, the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, not only did you receive it, but you're standing in it, and by which you are saved. In other words, he's saying to this church, you were changed by the resurrection of Jesus. How do I know that Jesus Christ is alive today? Because he changed my life, that's how I know. I was in college, I was a bartender, and I was living for Greg. And Jesus came and arrested me, apprehended me. I broke down like a little baby under a, st a stage in an auditorium and wept over my sinful condition and how God rescued me from that state that I was in. I know that Jesus was raised from the dead because I know what I was before I got saved, what he did for me. The second great evidence of the resurrection is Scripture itself. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins. Look, in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Jesus died for our sins. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. He died for my sins. He was buried and he was raised. Look according to the scriptures. The second great evidence of the resurrection is scripture. We have not only had this testimony of a transformed life, we have the testimony of the word of God itself. So scripture affirms both in the Old and the New Testament the resurrection of Christ. Thirdly, last of the three evidences, the third great evidence of the resurrection are the eyewitness accounts, the eyewitness accounts. Listen, church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real because Jesus is still transforming lives. He's still affirming the word of God because it stands forever. And there were eyewitnesses, lots of them, who actually saw it. They were there at that time. Verse 5, look with me. And he, he first appeared to Cephas. Who is Cephas? Peter. Then to the 12. Who are the 12? His disciples. Then he appeared to more than, look, 500 brothers at one time. All 500 seeing the exact same thing. What did they see? They saw a Jesus who first they saw on a cross who was dead because after he was dead, they stuck a spear in his side and water poured out. He was gone. They saw, they knew he was put into a tomb. They know he was in that tomb for three days. And now they see standing in front of them the glorified Christ. 500 at one time saw him, most of whom are still alive. 
though some have fallen asleep, some have died. So Paul is actually saying, in other words, he's saying many of the eyewitnesses were still living when Paul penned this, the, the, this letter. So he wasn't just penning something long after, kind of trying to, you know, uh, change history a little bit. He's speaking this while those people who saw it were still living. If it was untrue, they would have refuted it. Nobody's refuting anything. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers <clears throat> at one time. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, <clears throat> then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul saying, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, the one who literally locked up Christians was in favor of their death, is now the one who's the great preacher, the great apostle, the great evangelist, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. He says all of that was by the grace of God. The grace of God, I am what I am. It's by that. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is, is within me. Every day, you ought to be working in your faith, pressing in on the word of God, praying, looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Eyes are always up ready to let the Holy Spirit use you like a tool in the hand of God every day. This is how Paul lived. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And there you have it. You've got the testimony of transformed lives. You've got the testimony of Scripture. You've got the testimony of the eyewitness, including the Apostle Paul himself. Folks, the facts of the resurrection are irrefutable. In fact, this is one of the most comprehensive facts of ancient history. And nobody down through the ages has been able to disprove it. They can say, I don't believe it. And the majority of scholars, and liberal scholars especially, they, they don't believe it. It doesn't change the facts. You're entitled to your opinion. You're not entitled to your own set of facts. And the facts are true. Now, in spite of that, there are those who deny the resurrection and turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the facts. And Paul addresses those here in the text. And we're coming, look, we're working through this. It's not going to be much longer. Hang with me. But I, it's important for me that you understand the importance of the resurrection and what it means in your life. Listen, today, there's a lot of sermons going on right now. And a lot of them, it's all about how the resurrection can heal that ingrown toenail. How the resurrection can give you a better job. How the resurrection will give you an extra car. How the resurrection is going to put more money in your bank account. It's all about me, 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 me. It has nothing to do with the resurrection. I will not preach that sermon. I'm going to preach to you what the text gives us. And there is power in the resurrection. But it's not for you to have a better life. Where you enjoy more things and you're more comfortable. These did not die. The millions and millions did not die just to give you comfortability. They suffered and they died because they believed the truth. And that truth had tr transformed them. And I pray it transforms you today. So verse 12, let's pick up. Paul says, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you say that when all the evidence is to the contrary? How can you say that and be associated with the church? More importantly, what value is the church if there's no resurrection of the dead? What kind of a church is that that doesn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily? What's the purpose of our faith? Why do you even need faith if there's no resurrection? Now Paul gives, listen to this, he's going to give several disastrous results that happen if there is no resurrection from the dead. Verse Number one, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, write this down. Number one, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is still in the tomb. Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if there is no resurrection, we just die and go out of existence. That's the reality. And that's what an atheist believes. If evolution is true and there's just a continual recycling of the species, then death is final. There's no resurrection, not even for Christ. If men don't rise, then the one who was fully man didn't rise either. That leads to the next disaster. If there was no resurrection, number two, then there is no good news to proclaim. Without the resurrection, listen, there is no gospel. That means all these people on the earth who've heard this gospel, it's a lie, and they've been fooled. They're duped because there is no gospel. If Jesus wasn't raised, they're making the story up, and that means you're living your life on a false story. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Why? Because there's no good news. There's, look, you can't have a, a gospel with a message of salvation if you don't have a reason for salvation. What's the reason for salvation? We're sinners. We're destined for hell. We're destined for eternal damnation. That's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches from front to back cover. By the way, again, go back to Jesus. Some of you think he's a great guy, and you just think he was an upstanding citizen and all of this, but you're not giving him credit for God. You know what Jesus said about death and, and, and hell? Jesus spoke the same words about the eternality of heaven as he spoke about the eternality of hell. Both are real. And you will go one place or the other. But if there's no resurrection, you got nothing to worry about. Because all that doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. Number three, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is useless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He goes on to say in verse 17, he kind of repeats himself, and he says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's foolish. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ didn't rise. And if Christ didn't rise, all the gospel preaching is pointless and faith is pointless. It renders everything as delusional. All the former saints, all the Christian martyrs, the millions upon hundreds of millions who have died, they died absolute fools. You think about the ramifications of the fact that there's no resurrection. This is what happens. Let me give you another one. Number four, if there's no resurrection of the dead, the apostles were all liars. We're even found, verse 15, we are, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is, it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul's saying that if 
they were true, these people who didn't think that there was a resurrection after the dead, after, after you die. If, if that's true, then, uh, uh, hey, reality, um, it was a farce. The whole thing was a farce. A bunch of liars. The, the disciples, these are not good men. These men are, are, are not good men to follow. History is going to have to rewrite the opinions of the apostles. You can't canonize people that lie. It shouldn't be in the Bible. There shouldn't be a Bible. Without the resurrection, there really isn't any hope for the Bible. These guys are the scum of the earth. They're spreading terrible lies about Jesus being raised from the dead. Look at the people they deceive with their made-up story about Jesus. They're responsible for sending hundreds of millions of people to hell on a false hope. Their story's made up. It's a hoax. What a bunch of rotten scoundrels. Then as Paul comes to verse 16, he restates, and then he says this. This is a big one. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Number five, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then your, your sins are not forgiven. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will commit today, every future sin, not a single one of them is forgiven by God. If Christ is not alive, there's no hope of forgiveness. He didn't accomplish your atonement. He never dealt with your sin. He never satisfied the penalty of sin for God. And you're still bound to your sin. There is no forgiveness. There is no hope of heaven at all. This is the reality. If you take away the resurrection, if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, this is what you're left with. What's more, look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Number six, no resurrection of the dead, then those who died in Christ are forever damned. The dead who died with their hope in Christ are in hell for all eternity. And that leads to number nine, uh, verse 19, number seven. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're the most pitiful person walking on the face of the earth. Why? Because Christians who believe in a resurrection that didn't really happen, that means you spent your whole life thinking that there was going to be a heaven and that there would be rewards in heaven. And you surrendered to God's calling for salvation because you knew you were a sinner and there was a penalty for sin. And you didn't want to face it. You were thankful that God rescued you from that penalty. But if there's no Christ who raised from the dead, you believed all that stuff for no reason. You're pitiful. You, there's nobody on. You can take some person, a, a man or a woman whose spouse died with three small children and this and that, whatever story you want to look at that's heartbreaking and just, just wrenches you. Look at people in countries. Most of the people in the world we're wealthy toward, uh, compared to them. Every one of us in this room are wealthy compared to them, what they suffer on a regular basis. And we would say, oh, they're so pitiful. No, no. If there's no resurrection, you 
Christian, Christians are the most pitiful. If our hope in Christ only works in this life before death, then this life is a waste and we should be pitied. So he begins with this glorious statement and a resounding proclamation now in verse 20. I'm glad to get out of the bad news. Okay, that was the devastation. Here you are on Easter morning and hearing all this bad news, okay? But the bad news is what makes the good news so good, right? Okay, verse 20. He really reiterates the positive proof of the resurrection. Look what he says. He just comes right out with it. Paul doesn't mess around, man. He shoots straight. Look at this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he has been raised from the dead. And now he describes what the resurrection means for us. Talk about relevant truth from God's word. Here it is, verse 20. But in, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ himself became the first fruit of the resurrection from the dead. He's the first one, but we will follow him in resurrection from the dead. Amen. Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has, also, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're in Christ, if you are saved, if God has called you and you've surrendered to God, if you've believed in Jesus, if you've repented of your sin, you are saved. And you're alive in Christ because of that. Praise God. And it's a work of Christ, not a work in you. But each of us is but each, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes to the end when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God has put all things in subjection under Jesus Christ. He's a whole lot more than just a good man. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exerted, uh, accept, accepted, uh, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be in all and in all. That's a whole lot of subjection, let me tell you. Now, let's bring it down to the end. This is incredible divine truth that God is sharing to us today. This is divine fact. The Son of God becomes a servant, and he serves. He puts all things in subjection under him, but the one who really went in subjection was Jesus to God. And he did it for one reason. To obey the Father, that the Father's plan might be carried out. And the Father's plan was to reach you, to reconcile you back from sin. This whole thing of the resurrection has a purpose. Let me explain to you. Everybody in this room is a sinner. You might say, no, you know, I'm wealthy. I've got everything I need. I don't need any help. The uh, Bible says in Revelation that you're, you're blind, you're pitiful, you're poor, and you're naked and you don't know it. You're like the emperor in his new clothes. You think because this world has blessed you and you've got the M&Ms you need, the material goods and the money, that you're in good shape. The Bible says, spiritually speaking, that you are dead in your sins. And there is only one result, one implication to that. 
eternal damnation. And the only one who can rescue from that is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is fully God, who was with God in the beginning, and even before the beginning. God always existed. There was a beginning that we know of in Genesis, but that's not the beginning of God. That's just the beginning of this. Jesus was with him, and Jesus was the creator, the Bible says. And in him, all things are held together. And that Jesus became fully man while continuing to be fully God. And he comes to this earth, and he lives, and he professes the message of God's love and reconciliation. He speaks about a spiritual kingdom that you can belong to. And then he lays down his life that you might get there. He takes on everybody in this room's sin, every human being that's ever lived. Jesus takes on our sins, those who believe. And he goes to the cross, and there God, the Father, pours out on Jesus the Son through the Jews and through the Romans. He pours out the most horrendous death that a man can ever suffer. No human being has ever suffered the way Jesus suffered on the cross. You say, I don't believe that. That's not, that's not true because there's people that have died horrendous deaths, worse than that. So I cannot believe that. Okay, let me tell you the difference. The person who suffered that horrendous death that you're thinking of in history, listen, they didn't know it was coming. And they didn't have graphic, vivid detail of what it instilled. Jesus, from the moment he came, knew the plan of the Father. He knew he would suffer. He knew how he would suffer. He knew when he would suffer. He knew how long he would suffer. Jesus felt, look, he's fully God, yes, but he's also fully man. He every day experienced can you imagine the conscious awareness of what his future holds? No human being has suffered like Jesus. No wonder when he was on the cross, no wonder blood started pouring through his pores as his capillaries burst open, carrying the weight of the sin of the world, being the human sacrifice for every human being. John the Baptist made it clear, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John on the Isle of Patmos was caught up into heaven and he saw, God let him see in the heavens, he saw a scroll that nobody could open and he was weeping over it. And one of the elders said, hang on, hang on, oh, hey, hey, hey. And he looked up and he saw what was like a slain lamb a lamb that had been slain walking towards the scroll. A lamb that was all bloodied and beaten. Jesus, the picture in heaven, Jesus as a lamb slain. And he opened the scroll. Why? How could he do it? Because he paid the full price before God the Father for the sin that you committed. 
did it for you. Have you let that sink in? Have you dealt with the reality that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important piece of information you need to deal with to live in this world? Have you come to the reality of understanding that there would have been no resurrection if what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient to cover the debts of sinners? God the Father would have left him in the tomb. The reason God raised Jesus on the third day was because the payment was satisfied. My sins, past, present, future, were satisfied on the cross. Your sin, if you're a believer, your sins have been satisfied. And God raised Jesus up to prove it. Praise God. It's a purpose behind the resurrection. And that resurrection motivates me to three things every day. First, it motivates me to walk in my salvation. To never forget what God did for me to save me. And to be thankful every day for my salvation. Amen? Every day you ought to be thankful for your salvation. Secondly, you ought to be thankful. You ought to be motivated to walk in sanctification. Salvation is an event. Sanctification is a process. It's what Romans says that where we are being conformed to the image of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Every day, the Holy Spirit's wanting to bring you closer to look like Jesus. Every day. Never quits on you. Even when you mess up, doesn't quit. Still comes back, loves you. And you grow. And you look more like Jesus. I'm motivated by the resurrection to want to follow that process of sanctification. I want to be set aside for God's use on this earth while I am here. And I pray that you are as well on the same journey. Thirdly, it's a motivation for service. Every day I live because Jesus was subjected under God the Father and did exactly what the Father wanted. And now we are subject under Christ. That means that I no longer live. He lives in me. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I will do what he wants in my life. I said to you earlier that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then those of us who have believed that he was were pitiful people. Okay? Now let's turn that around. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then those of you in this room who have not fully believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ or even fully believe that he's God, you are the most pitiful people on this earth. And I don't care how much money you've got in your bank account. And I don't care how much reputation, good reputation you have in this community. Without the resurrection of Christ, without a real God, who sent a real son to die for your sins and then raise him from the dead, and you not believe it, that is pitiful. And your eternity will reveal it. My prayer this morning as a pastor on this day of resurrection is that you will surrender to Jesus. You will surrender to Jesus.
as he is calling you right now, that you will just throw your hands up and say, he is God. The resurrection's real. And now I understand why he was raised as proof that my sins have been forgiven through his work on the cross. I receive that by faith. I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm lost for all eternity apart from him, but with him, I have eternal life in Jesus. Nothing would be more exciting to this congregation than next Sunday, we have a lot more than two people that we baptize. It's not why I shared this. It's not about looking for a man result. God knows who gets saved in this room. He knows already who's saved. And he knows who's already received him in this room right now. But one of the public ways that we proclaim Christ is through baptism. It's a public profession of faith. You are literally telling the world, I belong to Jesus. It's more than that. You're telling Satan, you no longer have a hold on me. Sin has been conquered through the cross. And by the power of the resurrection, I am totally pardoned and I am set free. And so today, in my baptism, I am saying to you, sit down and shut up. I am free. Father, this morning, as we have come to the close of this message, this is the time when we take what we've learned from Scripture, the things that we've read, and we deal with them. Either it's, it's worthy of our time to consider and then to respond, or it's not. But for those that you're calling, there is a desperation in them right now. There's a desperation. Some have already been desperate through this message because the Spirit of God's not waiting for some result at the end. It's not about works, but there's a desperation. They're going to do whatever they have to do to come under your leadership, your lordship. And I pray that for those who might be here who up to this point in time have been skeptical, maybe even atheist. Those who have not fully believed, may this be a day of transformation. We pray it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. And let me say outside on the table, if you'd like to be baptized next week, write your name in. We will, you will get a phone call this week because it's important you understand what baptism is. You're not going to do it if you don't understand it. It's important that you fully are aware of what's happening. So we will call you, but please write your name down. God bless each of you. Fellowship with one another. What a great crowd of folks. Love somebody today. They need it. Amen. God bless.